What if the future we need is vastly different to the future we've been told to want? What if real progress doesn't look like driverless cars or hoverboards? Instead, let's imagine a world in which we value our most human instinct, the drive to care for each other and our planet. What if we stopped swallowing lines from politicians about what is a burden and what is an investment and recognised that we have the power to decide how we gather and spend money as a society? We have more than enough money to pay for the generous principled society that we all deserve and we can direct our leaders to deliver it. What if our cities were designed for people, not property portfolios? Let's imagine our cities as centres of human flourishing, productive, diverse and just, tools of environmental regeneration and social empowerment. The places we live can be designed to unlock our potential to contribute and be part of the solutions we need. What if we stopped shouting at each other? Imagine a public sphere where we could talk about values and the kind of future we want to build together a media and civic realm where big decisions could be made deliberatively and collectively. All of this is necessary if we are to address the planetary scale challenges that confront us. Despite the enormity of what lies ahead, this book is a manifesto for hope in the face of cataclysmic change. The heroes of our time aren't working to save the world as it is. Instead, in the ashes of the old, they're building a new world that's designed from the outset to be fair and sustainable, caring and creative. With imagination and a shared intention, we can be a part of that change and claim that fairer future. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking with Jess Scully about her new book, Glimpses of Utopia, Real Ideas for a Fairer World. Jess is Deputy Lord Mayor of the City of Sydney, a creativity curator and founder of the Vivid Ideas Festival. Jess, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Hi Greg, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. In part of your book you talk about art, design and culture as being integral to society. Creativity is something we usually associate with the arts, you know, pretty pictures and nice music. Your definition of creativity seems to be reaching for something much bigger. What does creativity mean to you and why is it so important? You know, I think my idea of creativity did start out being creative production, people making beautiful things or experiences or music, the sort of sensual and sensory world of creativity. But actually, I think what I've discovered over the course, particularly of researching this book, that creativity takes many forms. And some of the most creative things we see in the world are creative approaches to policy, um, actually thinking, well, what's stopping us getting the world that we need? And sometimes it's really boring stuff like regulation or tax policy or the way the building code is designed or planning choices that constrain us to live in this very 
linear and extractive and kind of exploitative way. Um, And so some of the most creative people I've encountered are people who work in policy or in um, building technology and design or people who are working in architecture and planning, um, as well as people who are working in the care economy um, and finding ways to centre and prioritise and value the act of caring for people on the planet. So what I really mean I guess, is that creativity is about seeing what is happening today, imagining what's possible, and then building a path to get there. And that can be either a creative imagining or it can be something that's much more prosaic. As I was reading through, even by some of the early pages, I was thinking, I wondered if the doubters, the sceptics, the cynics, even the trolls might have already denounced what you're talking about as impractical dreaming. I know what I'd say. I'd say, keep reading. But what would you say? They absolutely have. Um, And, you know, um, just in the few conversations I've had about the book so far, people have said to me, oh, but why would governments do this now? And, and, but surely that's unrealistic. And, you know, what's going to cause people who, uh, you know, own huge tracts of land or who pay very little tax or who um, are in government or media positions of power now, what would, what would make them change? And the one thing I would say is that nothing will make them change, but there's more of us than them. And we have got tools uh, to try and correct that imbalance. And the key tool is actually politics. But politics isn't really working for people the way that we do it today. So that's why I kind of start the story with politics. Because if we can uh, reimagine politics as a method of social decision making, and then realize that there are much better ways of engaging in politics than going to the polls every four years, and that politics is actually something that is a lived everyday um, activity, and it's actually uh, an obligation, but also a privilege of all of us who get to live in a democratic society, If we can reshape politics to be a better tool for being representative and um, a more inclusive form of decision-making and a decision-making that happens at a more granular neighbourhood level and not just, you know, once every four years making a choice on these big policy decisions, then we can get the outcomes that we want. And so we have a lot of power as citizens, but also as consumers. And so finding a way to exert that power in a way that's useful and meaningful That's the big challenge, I think. Politics is just one of the things we're going to talk about, but your book contains a myriad of ideas, concepts, old and new, new and existing projects, many of which have already proven their viability. Uh, There are also visions for the future, new mechanisms, new models for living and working. It's comprehensive and quite exhaustive, if I can say that. (laughs) It Um, felt exhaustive, but yes, go on. (laughs) One of the biggest challenges in preparing for this interview was deciding what not to talk about as much as what to talk about. Uh, And there's a lot of overlap between some of the subjects. So let's just pick a few and see what happens. The first one we've already touched on is democracy. Yeah. One of the ideas presented in your book is this idea of participatory democracy, which means more than simply casting a vote in an election. What's wrong with the current system? What's right with the current system, Greg? I mean, the the challenge we have is that we have um, what people call the political class, right? So it's this very narrow band of people who don't really look like the people that you see in the streets of our big cities or our towns. I write in the book about how the typical Australian parliamentarian is this guy called Andrew, right? Uh, Because there were eight uh, parliamentarians called Andrew. I was going to say, you're pretty close to the truth there. 
pretty close to the truth, you know. Um, and Andrew's 51. Uh, he has uh, two degrees. One of them's a law degree. He has two kids and he owns two houses. This is all as we sit right next to St Andrew's Cathedral. Yeah, right. You know, and we're here in, uh, you know, in the middle of one of the most privileged cities in the world, but we're also in one of the most diverse cities in the world. Um, and more than 50% of um, people living here in the city of Sydney and in and greater Sydney um, either were born overseas or at least one of their parents was born overseas. And yet our federal parliamentarians are some of the least ethnically diverse representatives that we have. So they're older, they're richer, they're whiter, and they're more male than the usual population. And not all men, hashtag not all men, but wouldn't we get a better and more uh, inclusive set of policy options and possibilities if our decision makers looked more like us, if they were younger, if maybe they had a more diverse socioeconomic background, a more diverse cultural background? Not only would they be able to have a broader range of life experience to draw from when they're making decisions about all of our future, our commonwealth, but they might also have access to a broader range of solutions to draw from, from all over the world, from different cultures and traditions. And that's what we're missing out on because our politics today, um, it's a very narrow band of people making decisions from a narrow set of knowledge. And unfortunately, it's privileging those same people. Um, it's preferencing their outcomes. So first of all, we have to make our politics more representative. And that means getting more people elected who don't look like the usual suspects. And the second thing we have to do, I think, is find ways for all of us to feel more included and heard as citizens. Um, and that means sometimes devolving decision making, whether it's through participatory budgeting, where we get to allocate part of government's um, budget through processes where we're all involved in, um, or getting involved in decision making around policies through things like citizens' juries. And the idea there is, okay, it's going to take a while for our parliament to look as diverse as our population, but until we get there, let's get more voices in the mix, let's get more people involved in decision making. And the upside is, it sort of emboldens politicians because they get this social license, they get this endorsement by a mini public, a representative group that says, you think the public interest or the public appetite is over here, but what we actually show you is that the public interest or appetite is possibly more generous, more inclusive, or more daring than you might consider. And we had that experience here through a number of citizens' juries at the City of Sydney as well. There's quite a few existing projects that are actually forging ahead or, or proving what you say as we speak. Things like projects that are going on in places like Iceland, in Preston in the UK, and of all places, Syria, this thing called confederalism. What is yeah. that? The democratic um, confederacy is an approach that sort of looks at getting your street or your local community to be the key um, unit of decision making, where neighbours basically get together and discuss and negotiate what their priorities are, and then their ideas flow upwards. So power starts from and is concentrated at the bottom of the decision making chain, and then those ideas flow upwards into councils and then committees and different districts. So it's not about having a centralised government, but really a decentralised approach. And I guess the upside is that you get that diversity, um, but you also get people responding to issues that are more locally felt. Um, and you get people feeling like their voices matter. And I think one of the problems with our political system at the moment is that a lot of people feel like whether they vote for Team Blue or Green or Red or, you know, 
their voices don't matter. They feel like those politicians might as well just go ahead and do whatever they like anyway. And that feeling of distrust and exclusion is leading to a lot of people losing faith in democracy as a system as a whole. And that's really dangerous, I think. It's quite a miracle that a war-torn place like Syria can have these kinds of mechanisms existing yeah. and working. It's extraordinary. And, you know, they're on a knife's edge. Uh, because this place called Rojava, which is the autonomous uh, confederacy of north and east Syria, it's this collection of seven different um, sort of provinces that they aren't actually even physically connected. They're just spread out across this area that's really surrounded by war and surrounded by enemies on all sides. Um, and they've been some of the most incredible fighters against ISIS. They really did defeat ISIS on their own. And yet, in amongst all of that, this group of people, particularly led by the Kurds, who have been one of the most marginalised and excluded populations in, in this part of the world, um, have said, do you know what? The, the existing systems of the nation state have just failed us um, over the last 100 years. Let's not try and do that again. Let's create something entirely new. And that's where this idea of um, democratic confederalism comes from. Um, this idea that, hang on a minute, let's not try and be a nation like every other nation. Let's be a community that is society leading itself. That's their key idea. That, that people have the talent and the knowledge and the um, capacity to make their own decisions and to do so in a way that is altruistic but also pragmatic. Um, and I love that. I love that idea that we would trust our fellow citizens to know that we actually are all capable of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to move on now to the principles of wealth and prosperity. Yes, yeah. And one of our key measurements is this idea of GDP, yep. gross domestic product, it's called. You say it's an insufficient measure of prosperity and wealth. Why is that? I mean, there's so much that is um, not quite right about GDP. I mean, to start with, the originator of the concept, a guy called Simon Kuznets, said expressly, please don't use this to measure whether a country is doing well and to make comparative judgments about one country versus another. And of course, that's exactly what we went and did. Um, because what he said was, this is an incomplete measure of how uh, how the people of a country are experiencing that wealth or prosperity. Because GDP doesn't have any sort of values lens on it. You know, um, a cancer case might increase GDP because of all of the healthcare expenditure or the, um, the, the drugs that are, are required. That those are all inputs into the economy. Um, ripping down a forest, you know, logging a forest could have a great impact on GDP. But there's no long-term accountability for what the impact of that um, you know, brief, short-term flurry of um, economic activity. Uh, it, it doesn't take into account the costs as much as it takes into account um, the income or the revenue that's generated. So it's, a, it's very much embedding short-term thinking into our decision-making. Um, and it doesn't have a values lens. And the other thing is, it doesn't measure how that benefit is apportioned across the society or the community. Um, and you know, there was a headline in the papers about a week ago, which was nonsensical, and it said, economy's set to bounce back, but jobs and wages won't. And you think, well, what is the economy then? It's if the economy is doing really well, but people and their jobs and their income is not improving, that 
gives you an indication that actually the stuff that we're counting in GDP is quite often the cream that is flowing, that's trickling up the economic chain uh, to those who already are doing quite well. It's actually a contradiction in terms, really. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And you look at a country like America, a country like Australia, um, where you can say that there is economic growth, um, or a country I talk about in the book as well, Chile, um, which is described as the miracle of Latin America, but it's one of the most unequal places in the world. Uh, and that is actually really dangerous, not just for individual lives, but as we get countries and communities becoming more polarised, you start to see the rise of extremism and you start to see people becoming disenfranchised with, with democracy itself. Um, and we start to get you know, crazy candidates, we start to get really loony ideas and parties forming, um, and we start to see people you know, start to drop out of the system altogether or, or cling to conspiracies to explain what's going wrong. So what do you propose as a, a new or a different system of measurement? I note that you use the word eudaimonia. I hope I'm pronouncing mm. that correctly. What, what does that mean and how can that be, um, I guess, reconfigured into a system of measurement that is meaningful? The concept is eudaimonia um, and it's uh, a concept from um, Aristotle and it means human flourishing. So really it's a philosophical aspiration uh, and it means what are all of the things that are necessary for people to live a meaningful and fulfilled life? And so that means, of course, access to the essentials, the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, of, of shelter and food and security. But it also means being able to be self-realised in a way, to have relationships um, with people, to um, grow and nurture yourself through education, um, through being able to contribute back and, and, and find purpose in what you do with your life. So if eudaimonia is the goal, then how do we measure our um, political or public actions and spending to be in service of that goal rather than the KPI of GDP? Uh, and there are countries that are trying to do that. Um, and New Zealand is one. Um, New Zealand has now got a well-being budget. And what that means is that they say that they're not just going to report on economic activity, but they're going to hold themselves accountable at every budget against some really important social determinants, such as child mortality, child poverty, um, how how many people are living in overcrowded housing, um, soil erosion, um, toxicity and pollution, um, uh, investment in R&D in their country. So they're going to look at the stuff that matters to people as human beings and they're going to add that to the ledger of the budget. And that's incredibly brave because most politicians wouldn't want to be measured um, on those sort of intractable, wicked, complex problems. But that's what it's going to take. Um, and that means that every time uh, a New Zealand minister comes forward with a budget proposal, they have to show how that will have an impact on improving one of those metrics. And here at the city of Sydney, um, we have a similar sort of thing at a much smaller scale, which we call the community wellbeing indicators. 
And that's a way that we go out to the community and we ask people, how much trust do you feel in your neighbours? Um, do you feel like you have people that you could call on if times were tough? Um, how safe do you feel in your neighbourhood? And it's a way for us to assess if we're actually improving people's quality of life, um, their sense of connection to each other and to their place. Um, and then we judge ourselves on that and we um, allocate our spending on different proposals um, in relation to those responses. And here's a term that we don't hear very often, the care economy. What is it and why is it so important? It's so funny that all of the things that actually improve our quality of life and that make us happier and healthier and more secure and educated are all considered expenses rather than investments in the way that our current accounting system and our current government priorities function. And that's partly because of that original sin of GDP, um, but it's partly because we're used to getting it for free. And so there's this sort of um, the original conception of the system we have today, whether it's Adam Smith on the sort of free market side or Karl Marx on the um, more socialist side of things, um, they both thought that anything that happened in the home was an expense. Um, it was not something that actually contributed to society. It was part of the private sphere, not the public sphere. And that's because they both had some pretty cooked relationships with women, right? Um, and all of this stuff, caring for young people, for babies, for the elderly, educating, um, taking care of people with, with medical or, or, or disability needs, was all considered stuff that you got for free in the home. And that's not how society works anymore. I was intrigued by a statement that I think was um, made by a collective called, or an alliance called the US Domestic Workers Alliance, yes. who call it the work that makes other work possible. Absolutely. You know, I have a 10-month-old baby and, you know, we're at the stage now where we're figuring out what can we do, my, my husband and I, for work? When can we work? How can we work? All of it is going to hinge on the kind of care patchwork that we can put together between overpriced, oversubscribed childcare and, you know, his mum and my mum and his sister and my sister and, you know, piecing this together. And if we don't get that foundation right, then neither of us can go out and contribute to the economy or society. Um, and likewise with care, with elder care, likewise for care, um, if you're in hospital or if you need um, support in any way. So we've got to address this fundamental disconnect we have between our reality as physical beings that need care and this abstract realm of the economy where we are each these independent productive units in the prime of our lives who show up from nine to five, produce and then go back to our little matrix cubes or wherever they think we come from. Which in itself is quite a long way from the reality. No one these lives days. like that, right? Yeah. So what I'm saying is we need to reassess that, that whole conception. And there are some really fantastic economists who have said, well, if we address that um, misconception, it has a much better outcome for our economy um, and our society and issues like the gender pay gap. Uh, because here's the thing, much of that work is still provided by women, most of whom are paid at the lowest rates in our society um, and who have really damaging um, or really poor conditions of work. And when you have poor conditions of work, as we're seeing during this global pandemic, that can actually be a system risk for society 
because you have more precarious work, you have more people needing to work longer hours, not able to take time off if they feel unwell and having to work across multiple workplaces. So here's the thing. There's a group called the Women's Budget Group, um, a group of economists from the UK who've done the modelling in OECD countries, which are those wealthy countries, including Australia. Uh, and they found that if all of this sort of uh, recovery, stimulus, nation-building spending that we hear about, whether it's school halls or, or um, you know, extensions and renos, if all of the public funding that went into that kind of nation building was instead directed into the care economy, so I'm talking about childcare, elder care, schools and hospitals, we would see twice as many jobs being created and we would see a huge impact um, on uh, not just employment, but on better paid and fairer employment. And this is the kind of work that also has multiplier benefits because those investments mean that you have a more educated workforce, uh, more productive capacity because you have more, um, particularly women, able to go into the workforce. And you actually have a lighter environmental footprint because these are the, this is the kind of work that doesn't tend to be extractive, but intend, in, instead tends to be more sustainable work. Um, and you know what? It's the kind of work that robots can't do. Um, so it's the perfect way to safeguard against um, an automation um, of our economy as well. Quite a bit of the book is taken up with this idea of financialization, banking and, and finance systems that basically run the world. You raise the idea of uh, private banks and retail banks. What's the difference between those two? And what lessons can we draw from the way these two different institutions operate? So the world of banking isn't my natural environment, I have to tell you, Greg. Um, but I'm fascinated by it because, uh, you know, money is meant to be uh, a tool and a fuel for supporting the real economy, the place where you and I live and work. Um, but more often than not, what we're seeing today is that money is being abstracted it's off in this realm that people call fire, finance, insurance, and real estate. And in countries like the UK, with a very heavily financialized economy, 90% of their transactions only take place in that realm of fire, uh, which means that it's 10% that actually comes out into the real world to fund businesses or loans or anything that bricks and mortar people might be involved in. You know, physical human beings might be involved in, um, apart from real estate. So that's the issue of financialization. And it has a, a particularly damaging effect when we look at the banking sector and when we look at how we fund um, public infrastructure and public goods. So if we require governments and um, public entities to also just engage in that system of the private realm of finance, they're paying interest and fees, sometimes uh, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars to these privately owned or, or, or stock market owned entities like the banks that we have, our big four banks, for example. Um, banks who um, don't have an obligation to act in the public good and instead have an obligation to serve shareholder interest. Do you know what? That's fine. It's not great, but leave them to it. That's, that's what I'm saying. I can't I'm ambitious and optimistic, but I'm not seeing myself getting in there in the, with the big four and reforming their ways right now. I'm, I'm not that ambitious, right? 
Here's what I think we should do instead. I think we actually need a parallel stream of banking, a stream of banking that has public good and public benefit at its core. And what that means is that their number one obligation would be to fund projects that are publicly beneficial. So whether that's affordable housing, renewable energy, um, uh, supporting um, de the democratic economy or worker-owned enterprise, cooperatives, those sorts of beneficial um, business entities. And we actually had one of those banks once, yes. once upon a time. Well, here's the thing that blew my mind. We started it in Australia. Um, and when I was talking to some advocates about this elsewhere in the world, they said, hang on a minute, haven't you heard of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia? And I said, which bank? Uh, I know that bank. Um, and I remembered that, you know, back in the 90s, the Commonwealth Bank was, was first um, put on the stock market. It went public. Floated. Which floated, um, which is hilarious because it was actually the first public bank back in 1913. It was created um, when there was a lot of economic instability after the last big financial crisis in the 1910s, or one of the first ones in the 1910s. And so this bank was created and its entire purpose was to fund production, capacity and need in Australia. And it just underwrote the deposits of the entire country. It financed world, the World War I war effort. And then after the war, it financed um, the provision of an export fleet that helped Australia export its, um, its production, you know, particularly export industries, including wool off the sheep's back, um, agricultural products, you name it, right? A lot of that was driven by the fact that we had a public bank that was designed for public good. And then, um, the very charismatic uh, first governor, Denison Miller, of that bank died. And the Bank of England went, hang on a minute, all of our colonies are getting very uppity and they're uh, creating their own liquidity and they're living beyond their means. And from now on, you'll be getting your loans from us. Thank you very much. And because of that, Australia was, uh, we still had the Commonwealth Bank, but it had to borrow from the Bank of England in order to lend to Australians. And they kept on demanding their interest payments all through the Great Depression, um, which had a huge negative impact. It makes you wonder what the Depression experience in Australia might have been like had that not been the case. Absolutely. And imagine if we had had our own bank to finance our own version of the New Deal that the US had, for example. Uh, so it's really illuminating when you realise that actually a lot of these great ideas aren't new ideas at all. Um, they're just old ideas that need to be revived um, and we need to be aware of the kinds of um, obstacles and landmines that got in the way of them the first time around. Jess, I want to return now to the beginning of the book in a sense and a particular passage that draws on the work of a 20th century utopian thinker, Ernst Bloch. Mm -hmm. And I think it encapsulates one of the most important messages of this book, which is to rethink our whole idea of what utopia is. Can you read it for me? Of course, I'd love to. A concrete utopia is one that goes beyond expressing a desire for a particular kind of future and instead works towards enacting that hope for a new way of living. But that's not to say only the detailed comprehensive plans are the concrete ones. You don't need to have the whole solution laid out before you to have an inspiring concrete utopian vision. All you need is to give a glimpse of the possible and to have some latent potential in your idea 
that can blossom into something significant in the future to be a maker of a utopia. This is what I want us to find in our world today. Glimpses of utopia, ideas and projects laden with the possibility of transformative systemic change. More than anything, the fear of change is the biggest obstacle that we could encounter. How do we overcome that fear? You know, I've been talking to lots of people over the last few months about recovery from this crisis that we're in. And then I've been saying to them, yeah, but look back before this crisis. Let's go back to January. We weren't having a very good time then. And let's go back to this time last year. You were probably struggling then too. And I think what we have to be mindful of when we think about fear of change or the path to recovery from this crisis we're in right now is that actually the status quo wasn't really working for that many people. I think more of us had more uncertainty and insecurity about our working lives, uh, about retirement or our careers, um, a sense of where we would live and how we'd afford it, um, a sense of what our natural environment is doing and how it's becoming more extreme. Business as usual isn't working. More and more people are feeling cut out and left out of the system. And we're seeing the benefit of this society uh, being extracted to fewer and fewer people. We're seeing more um, insecurity and unhappiness um, as more and more people feel like they don't fit in or the system isn't designed for them. So if I think if you're afraid of change, you have to think about, well, is this the best things could be? And I don't think this is the best things could be. I think we're very lucky. We are living in a moment in history where, you know, we have conquered a lot of big challenges and, and people are in large parts of the world, um, you know, coming out of poverty uh, or having better outcomes when it comes to literacy or child mortality. But we're also at a time where things like life expectancy are going backwards, which is unprecedented, really, that in places like the US and the UK, life expectancy is shrinking. And that's a sign actually that things are not working for a lot of people. So let's think about what are we really scared of losing? What are we really scared of changing? And can we imagine a world where things were actually better than they are today, where we felt more seen and valued and like more active participants, that we had more control over the things that were happening to us, that we were more informed about them um, and that we had more connections, deeper connections with the people who live around us and who work with us, that we had more of a stake in the companies that we work for, that we had more security in the jobs that we do, and that we had a greater confidence that the world that we're passing on to our kids would be a safe, a secure world, that they would get a society and a natural environment and an economy that they could thrive in. And I think holding on to today while it's easy to be afraid, we're risking, there's the opportunity cost of what we're not getting by continuing down this path we're on. And the future that I can see that is possible is so much more exciting and creative and caring and, and something that I have a deeper connection to than the future that looks like the dystopias that we see playing out on our TV screens or in our fiction. 
you know, we're at this inflection point in history right now where we can choose to look at everything that's come before and think, we don't want that anymore. And at every point in history where there has been dramatic change, it has arisen from a crisis. So we're at a moment of crisis right now with this pandemic and with climate change and with inequality. And so we have to stop, we have to hit pause on this society that we have now, and we have to actively choose something better because this is our generation's moment to choose a better path. You know, in, in previous times they had, they recovered from the war and they chose the New Deal, they chose the NHS, they chose Commonwealth housing in Australia. You know, in previous times, people decided that after a crisis and a, and a, a time that tested the foundations of their society, that they would come out of it more unified and creating the social institutions that lifted more people up out of poverty. And this is our moment to do the same thing. But we don't just have to deal with poverty or inequality, we also have to deal with climate change. These are urgent crises that have been harder to spot because they're happening silently in slow motion. Whereas this pandemic has had that urgency to it that I hope will be a catalyst for change. So it's natural to be fearful, but I'm more fearful of what happens if we don't change. And I'm really hopeful that we can create a future that we actually want to hand on to the next generation. And we have a responsibility to try. That seems like a great note to finish on, but before we do finish, I just want to say something about the book, which is, as I read the book, I, I went through this roller coaster of emotions. I, I laughed, I was furious, I was elated, I was brought to tears, oh. but at the same time I was kind of filled with hope. And oh, good. Um, the fact that I feel all these emotions uh, it tells me one thing, that this is a great book. Oh, that's so and nice, thank also, you. And also, the coherence of the writing and the veracity of all the information that you put together in the book only leaves me with one further question. What do I do now? What, what action can people take to build this utopia, to, to see these glimpses of utopia? I mean, there's so much that needs to be done that it can be paralyzing, right? It can freeze you in place. I think the first thing we have to do is start to change the narrative um, in the conversations we have with our friends and family. It's really easy to talk about how doomed everything is um, I think we need to start telling people we're at a really dark moment, but there are already people who are creating solutions and there's a better way forward. And you know what? Change might hurt a little bit at first, but the outcome's going to be great. It's probably a case of we're going to gain more than we lose. A hundred percent. More of us have so much more to gain. So I think you've got to start that way. And the other thing I would say is start local. Like it's not just about individual action. You know, recycling is really great, really important. Do it, of course you gotta do it. But it's about being involved at a local level as much as you can. And I think local government is really important. Uh, I think how do you convey your priorities to people who are making decisions on your behalf? And that might be governments or it might be businesses. And becoming an active citizen, an active consumer, uh, are two ways of doing that. Move your super, move your mortgage, move your bank account. One of the, the people in the book, um, Kat Taylor, says, you know, where your money sleeps at night has more power than you will have during the day. Um, and I'm still working on that, but it is something that really, really matters and makes a big difference. So move your money, think about the brands and the, the entities that you support, um, and 
think about local politics as well. Um, what can you express and convey as a priority to the people who represent you at a local, state and federal level? And let them know that if they're ambitious and they try and change the status quo, that you've got their back and that you actually want them to be bold and courageous. Um, because you know what? We always hear from people who are opposed to the things, but we never hear from people who are in support of things. So be that voice. Um, tell people what you stand for, not just what you stand against. And I think that's the thing that's often missing when people talk about social change. Jess Scully, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thanks, Greg. I've been talking to Jess Scully about her new book, Glimpses of Utopia, Real Ideas for a Fairer World. It's published by Pantera Press and it's available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name is Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. <laughs>